Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I think that the the guest that we have today, we're gonna learn so much because he has done it multiple, multiple times, and the last one was a pretty uh, significant um, experience. So I guess without further ado, uh, let's welcome the guest, Jonah Goodhart. So welcome to the show today. How's everything? Thanks for having me, Alejandro. I'm really excited to be here. Cool. So I think let's let's do a little bit of uh, of walk through memory lane here. So um, so you studied in in Cornell, is that right? I did. I went to Cornell University uh, and actually was one of uh, I am one of not was one of one of uh, three brothers and both of my older brothers uh, also went to Cornell. So it was sort of a family tradition by the time that I got there. Really cool. And all of you guys studied political science. No. So my, uh, I studied political science, my middle brother, uh, studied political science and my oldest brother studied psychology. Uh, at the time Cornell didn't, I probably would have done a business major undergrad or something along those lines. But at the time Cornell didn't have really a, a business major of sorts, uh, that I could, that I could do. And so uh, I thought political science was interesting and sort of gave you an interesting perspective on, on the world. But, uh, my view was I wanted to at some point get into business and, and, uh, hopefully try to try to create businesses. Got it. And and did you already knew like before before college that you wanted to go into creating businesses? Like where where did that entrepreneurial bug come from? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, for me, uh, I I did have this sort of interest in it, but it was mainly driven from my oldest brother. So my oldest brother uh, had started a company when he was in college that was a newspaper, and he had figured out a couple of interesting innovations in that in that space. And then he went on from there to start a magazine. And he had, he'd sort of done a couple of things that I looked at and went, wow, that's super interesting. He doesn't, it's not a, a traditional job. He's not, he sort of can create his own destiny to some degree. Uh, and it just looked really exciting and really fun. And so that was really my first exposure in, in my family and in my world to being an entrepreneur. And I loved it. And so when uh, the time came and and an opportunity sort of presented itself. Uh, myself and my middle brother decided to to uh, form a partnership together and and jump in and see what we what we could create and ended up creating a company um, in in my junior year of college uh, when we were when we were just trying to figure out uh, what was happening in the in the world and the world of uh, myself personally and the world of the internet and a lot of things were 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 new and so uh, we jumped in with both feet though. 
and and this is with Noah. So what was the age difference between Noah and then also your your older brother? Yeah, so he's Noah's two years older. Uh, Josh, my oldest brother, is five years older. Um, and so I was. I remember visiting Josh when I was in high school, when he was in college, and I remember just being sort of amazed at uh, what he was doing and sort of the business that he was creating there. Um, Noah had graduated or was just graduating when I was becoming a junior, and he went on uh, to start a PhD program, actually, in political science uh, at another university, uh, and came back to campus uh, during a spring break. And we really just got into talking about an opportunity that that uh, we started to see and and decided to jump in and, and create a business. I can't say that we planned it out and that we had a business plan or any of that. We just felt like, huh, seems like there's an opportunity here. Uh, let's give it a try. And this was the late 90s. So it was this is the late 90s. Yeah, this is this is the time when, you know, Internet companies were going public and market values were going crazy and and venture capital was frothy and all of these things uh, were happening and there hadn't been any downside yet. Right. And so from a, from a third party's perspective who wasn't involved in it, I was looking at it going, wow, this is this is pretty exciting. This first of all, the Internet, this is pretty amazing. The idea that you can communicate and, and transact and interact in a way that uh, I had never seen before in, in my life. Uh, number one, number two, the fact that there was an incredible amount of value being created, that companies were going public, that they were creating billions of dollars of, of value, it seemed, was just exciting. And so I think I wanted to be a part of it. My brother wanted to be a part of it, uh, but we didn't know what to do and we didn't know what to create. And so that ended up becoming a really interesting journey for us in, in creating our first company, uh, which is a company called Colonize that we started when we were at Cornell or when I was still a, a, an undergrad at Cornell. So this was in, in New York City, obviously. No, this was so Cornell's uh, in Ithaca, New York. They actually now have a campus in New York City, uh, the tech campus for Cornell. But uh, the main campus for Cornell is in Ithaca, New York. So we were in upstate Ithaca, New York, looking over the, the gorges, uh, freezing ourselves you know, <laughs> nine, nine months out of the year uh, and trying to to figure out what to do and actually I was working at a computer center, so I didn't own a computer at the time. Uh, I was, we were raised, we didn't talk about this, but we were raised in, in Michigan, uh, grew up in, you know, the middle class in the Midwest, uh, got to school, couldn't afford to buy a computer, was on full financial aid, had a scholarship, had basically everything the government and Cornell combined would offer me uh, in order to pay for school. But I was enamored with the internet and with technology. Uh, and so my brother had gotten a job when he was at Cornell at the computer center, my middle brother, and I loved that idea. And so I got a job making, I don't know, $4 an hour or $5 an hour or something like that at the time, but I got access to computers and I got access to the internet. And so that really uh, gave me a chance to, to uh, start exploring. And I think once that started uh, and Noah and I started talking about different ideas um, and what we were seeing happening in, in terms of the world of, of e-commerce and what companies were doing to acquire customers, we started to experiment. And from there, we ended up creating a, creating a company. So let's talk about colonize.com. So this was your 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 first business. In, yeah. in the, and, and, and with Noah, you were doing this with Noah, with your brother. So so how did the uh, the idea come about? I mean, was it his idea and he enrolled you in it or, or how <laughs> What was the incubation process? No, I mean, it was it was pretty iterative. So, you know, what happened was e-commerce companies were uh, launching. So PlanetRx.com, uh, Pets.com, Buy.com. We remember the big names, right? Some of them 
still exist today, although most of them don't. And part of their launch strategy at the time was to give away free products uh, in order to induce new customers. So they would say, come sign up at our site and get your first purchase for free. And as a student who didn't have very much money, uh, I thought that was pretty cool, not as a business, but just as a person that could get free stuff. And so I would go online and I would uh, sign up for these different sites and I would get stuff shipped to me. Over the the previous summer, going into my junior year, um, I became sort of obsessed with this idea of getting free stuff on the internet and being able to uh, sign up on all these different e-commerce sites to the point that I had boxes and boxes and boxes uh, showing up at my uh, college uh, dorm room over the summer in, in New York City doing an internship there uh, every day. Uh, at which point my roommate at the time said to me, you know, this is a little bit odd that you have, with no offense, that you have all this stuff showing up. How is it that you're able to do that? You don't you know, really have that much money you can spend on this sort of thing. And I said, well, it's the internet. Everything's, everything's free on the internet. Um, and he said, huh, that's pretty cool. Can you send me uh, an email with how you do that? And it was actually this sort of interesting moment in time where he was someone that had come from a different background than I had. He was an investment banker. His you know, family had run successful businesses. And I thought, why would someone that you know, has a little bit more means than I did have an interest in getting, you know, a $10 or $20 thing for free. And it was one of my first business lessons, which was that everybody wants a bargain. Uh, and so I sent him an email, uh, explained to him, here's how you sign up for this free stuff. And he said, that's pretty cool. My boss, the MD of the whole bank, uh, wants to learn how to get this stuff as well. Can you add him to your list? If you send out an email, can you send out to me and him? And I had a, a bunch of friends start to do this. And I started talking with Noah uh, about this of, huh, this is sort of interesting. People are asking to find these offers. Wasn't a business yet, wasn't making any money, was literally just finding cool stuff, free stuff on the internet and sending it out via email to my friends. Well, what started as a handful of folks soon was 20, 50, 100, 200 people, not massive, but there was a little population of people that were getting emails from me uh, to the point that we thought, there's something interesting to having an email list. And there was companies at the time, one called uh, Net Creations. Uh, I think it was called Postmaster Direct and then eventually changed its name. Another called Free Shop, uh, which were public companies trading at something like $100 per email address. And I remember talking with Noah and Noah saying to me, it's really interesting that the value of someone's email is $100, or at least it seems to be in the, in the public market. We should build a big email list. And here we had, you know, a couple hundred people that we were emailing about what we called bargains or, or free deals on the internet. Uh, and it seemed interesting to sort of create that email list and, and see what would happen. Again, no idea of a business, no idea of what would happen next. So what did we do? Well, when we got back to Cornell, we literally posted flyers around campus with the little tear-offs. If you can remember those where you tear off a little uh, part of the paper and it would say, go sign up to get free stuff on the internet. Go sign up for a free CD. There was a company called CD Now that was giving away free CDs. And we said, if you sign up, we'll send you a link so you can get free stuff. And in order to just facilitate people uh, wanting to be on this email list, we put up a basic webpage and we just said, submit your email and we'll send you these amazing bargains that we find online. Again, no money being transacted until one day uh, I got a phone call. And the phone call was from someone who worked at Barnes and Noble. And uh, the person answered the other side of the, the line. I, sorry, I answered the phone and the person on the other side of the line said, are you the uh, person 
who's sending out emails uh, telling people how to get free stuff from barnesandnoble.com. And I <laughs> sort of paused for a second uh, and said, you know, maybe, yes, uh, uh, possibly. Uh, how can I help you? Uh, and the person said, no, it's great. Uh, in fact, we have a, a program. We call it our affiliate program. And if we send you a link, it has a specific code in it. If you use that link to send out to your emails, we'll know that it's you and we can pay you for every customer that's generated from your links. And for the first time, Noah and I both thought, huh, that's super interesting. So they want to pay us in essence to promote their products. But at the time it felt like pay us to give away their products because the, the offer they were giving to consumers was so great. We of course instantly uh, thought, I wonder if the other companies that are giving away their products will also pay us to promote them to give away their products. And so we called up each company, got in touch with them, noticed that actually most of them had an affiliate program of sorts that we could sign up for. Uh, and the next email that we sent out to this list of now maybe five or 600 people, instead of it just being generic uh, links, had codes in them. And those codes linked back to us. And when people clicked on them and became new customers, we got paid. That was the first time that we realized there might be some sort of business here. Uh, and at that point, we got really excited. Again, I still don't own a computer. I'm working at the Cornell uh, campus, one of the computer labs, um, which gave me 24-7 access to computers. And all of a sudden, we send out one email, people click on it, and they become customers, and we're making money. And so we thought, this is pretty cool. How do we scale this? Uh, how do we get not 500 people, how do we get 5,000, 50,000, 500,000? How much, time, how much uh, time did it pass from the moment you kind of like thought about, you know, the idea to when you had this aha moment? Um, well, so the moment that we transacted on our first emails, when we actually made money, uh, it, it took us very little time to figure out that there's a business here. Uh, we didn't know if it would be a good business, a real business, something that scaled, et cetera. But we became obsessed with trying to grow our email list. And so we went out and bought uh, email advertising was the first thing that we did uh, until one day I actually got a cold call uh, from someone who was selling what was called banner advertising at the time. Now they call it display advertising, but the ads that are on every website. And he literally said, uh, I sell banner advertising. It's on every website in the world. I saw that you guys are advertising uh, your newsletter. Have you ever thought about buying banner advertising? Uh, and one of the things that we had found in doing some email ads is that they were great, but there weren't very many of them. They didn't scale that well. It was hard to find space in email newsletters. Uh, and the idea of banner advertising was intriguing because it was on every website in the world. And so I remember we said to him, yeah, we'll give it a try. If you can take a credit card, we'd love to run a test over the weekend. Um, and later he would tell this story on how nobody had told him that, that they would spend a couple thousand dollars the next day with him uh, on a credit card, particularly some guys out of Ithaca that he didn't know. Uh, but nonetheless, we went forward. We spent a few thousand dollars. A campaign went up and running, and it made money instantaneously. And what became exciting for us was then figuring out, all right, how do we scale this into a business? So I think in our first full 12 months as a business, we generated $15 million or so of revenue and some $10 million or so of profit. Seemed great. We were on top of the world. I'll cut to the chase, though. Little did we know that 2000 and 2001 was around the corner. Little did we know that we were about to face one of the biggest learnings of our career, 
which was that we hadn't built a sticky business. We hadn't built a sustainable business. We hadn't built something that had value beyond the moment. And when the world changed, our business changed dramatically, and we ended up not being able to sustain the business uh, for very much longer after that. So then what, what ended up happening with the business? Well, uh, what ended up happening was that the guy who had cold called me and sold me banner ads, uh, after 2001 happened, he was working at a company called DoubleClick, and DoubleClick decided to split media and technology at the time. DoubleClick, this is pre-Google buying them. DoubleClick said, we're going to be in the technology business. We're not going to be in the media business. And so he was working on the media side. He was selling media. Uh, and he said, well, now I'm going to be part of this other acquisition. I'm getting spun off in this other company. I think I want to go start my own company. Um, and of all the things that have happened over the last couple of years, what we've done together uh, in you buying media from me, we were his biggest client at this point at DoubleClick, has really showed me that there's an opportunity uh, to trade digital ad inventory, uh, maybe in a different way than has been done before. And so uh, he called me, I went out to dinner with him and my brother, uh, and we talked about this idea of trading digital ad inventory uh, and creating maybe a better way to do that, a more efficient way to do that. And so uh, we ended up deciding now as our one business is declining very rapidly, um, nobody knew that of course, uh, but as our one business is declining, colonized rapidly, we decided to write a check uh, for this other guy to start a new company that he wanted to start. That new company became uh, the first at scale digital advertising uh, trading platform or marketplace or exchange uh, and was a company called Right Media. It would eventually go on to be bought by Yahoo. But it was this sort of super interesting uh, serendipity and, and set of events that I think, one, we felt very fortunate and lucky. But at the same time, had we not been sort of, I guess, in the situation that we were in, maybe we wouldn't have been as focused on finding what was next or betting on somebody else or what have you. But seeing the decline of our first business, we thought, all right, this is not sustainable. Something's changed. I don't know if it's our fault. I guess it's our fault, but we're, we're, it's not working anymore. So let's figure out something else. And we happened to get a phone call from uh, this fella and, and we made a bet. Really cool. And, and Colonize, actually, you, you build that into one of the most trafficked websites in the U.S. Is that right? It was at the time. Yeah. I mean, we, it really taught us the power of uh, media uh, and the power of the internet, which was that if we could make an ad that was successful, it could run across a tremendous number of websites and we could generate traffic from those ads. I remember when banner advertising first came out, people thought, well, this is really like magazines. This is about building a brand and this is about telling a story. Um, this is not about uh, selling uh, anything through the lens of direct response. This is not, you know, classified ads. This is about building brands. And what we learned through colonize was, well, uh, you can actually build a pretty big direct response business by leveraging banner ads. And I think we were probably one of not the first, but certainly one of the first companies that had some scale at driving traffic, using banner ads, using display ads at the time. Um, since then, of course, uh, what was interesting is Right Media, of course, created the platform for trading ad inventory. And then fast forward a little bit to 2007, Right Media gets acquired by Yahoo. And we sort of have this interesting moment where we pause and go, what's just happened here? So the, the world of the internet has continued to grow. User growth continues up and to the right. Every country that comes online up and to the right. Uh, transactions up and to the right. Um, advertising up and to the right. However, 
it seems like most of the money being spent in digital advertising in 2007 was direct response advertisers, was folks that could measure to a T, did I transact? Did I get somebody to submit their email address to, to join a, a newsletter? Did I get someone to take some specific action? And we had this sort of initial uh, beginnings of an idea that would take us a little bit of time to turn into a new company. But it was this initial idea of brands are going to have to figure out how to make digital work. They're going to have to figure out how to storytell in digital. And so what we had seen through Colonize and Right Media was that digital is great for direct response. It's great for getting someone to sign up for something, to, to enter a sweepstakes, to take some specific action. But how do you storytell? How do you build a brand that's memorable in the ways that a lot of the great brands that we know and love have built their brands, frankly, in television and in other mediums? And so that became sort of this inkling of, of an idea of, huh, how are brands going to, and are brands going to figure out how to storytell in digital? And it would eventually become uh, really the crux of, of our vision or our North Star for uh, creating Moat, which we started in 2010. And we'll talk about that in, in just a sec. So so on Right Media, when you invested, I mean, what, what kind of involvement did you guys have? I mean, were you like actively involved or it was just like more like, hey, here's the investment and, you know, we'll just track it and help whenever we can? Yeah, no, we were actively involved. I mean, we were on the board. We were the first customer. We started doing our media buying uh, that we used to do through DoubleClick, now through Right Media. Um, we were, you know, active in early uh, customer conversations and trying to get other people involved in the platform. It wasn't our company, right? I mean, we were still running this other thing, trying to make it work. Uh, we were, I would say, active investors, but we weren't we weren't running it day to day. It was Mike Walrath. It was his company and and the team that that he hired. Um, but we were close to it, and we were looking at at what was happening, how it was affecting our business. One of the things that we saw on the colonized side is that as right media took off and started to do well, it became even harder, not that we needed more challenges to figure out a colonize, but it became even harder to make colonize work because it was easier to buy media as a result of right media. It was easier to bid on inventory. It was easier uh, to centralize your creative and run it across thousands of websites. And so all of a sudden it made it easier for other people to compete with us. And so what was already a challenging business to try to maintain became really hard when right media started to scale. Luckily, we had some upside in right media, and so it worked out. But um, it was really interesting to see how that unfolded. And I believe the uh, the terms of the transaction of a, a right media, it was $680 million, the uh, price that was paid by Yahoo, I believe. That, that's what yeah, so that's right. So Yahoo had Yahoo had owned twenty percent of the company already. So they had actually bought twenty percent of the company, invested in the company previously. So Right Media was acquired at a value of eight hundred and fifty million. But the net of that, because they weren't paying themselves, because they already owned twenty percent of it, was the six eighty. I think the number was. So that's sure. exactly right. So this is probably Jonah one of the best angel investments in history. Yeah, I mean, I don't know about that. Nowadays, <laughs> it seems like uh, there's plenty of, you know, lots of bazillion dollar companies all over the place and, right. and uh, a lot of great companies out there. But, you know, for, for two kids uh, coming out of Michigan and going through Cornell and experiencing what we had just experienced, we were honestly amazed and, and um, didn't feel like we we earned it. We didn't feel like, you know, we we did this because we we saw it and we knew it wasn't anything like that. It was us trying to 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 ride the wave and and to make a bet when we when we 
saw someone that we believed in and, and honestly didn't know much more beyond that. And, and you also continued on the, on the investment side before you started Moat. So, um, and you know, it's great because the, um, the, I guess the experience with right media for you and for your brother, Noah, it really brought you close to, to Mike, uh, who was the, uh, the, the driving force behind uh, right media. And, and he literally became like your third, uh, a brother from a business perspective, right? Yeah, he became he became our our honorary uh, you know fourth brother, I guess. Um, <laughs> but he he uh, yeah he became he became really close, and and you know we decided to form an investment fund together. So we formed WGI, which is you know with with zero creativity uh, stands for Walrath Goodhart, uh, my last name Investments, uh, and the idea was we're going to invest in uh, internet entrepreneurs, we're going to invest in interesting startups, and so. Uh, starting right around the time when Right Media sold, uh, we started sort of ramping up our activities in in that world. And so we went out and met tons of interesting companies and have made uh, over 100 investments over the last uh, 10 or so years, some of which have, have ended up becoming amazing companies like Yext, which is a great public company, uh, others that have been acquired by folks like Apple and Twitter and uh, plenty of companies that didn't work and, and went to zero and have learned a lot in that in that process. Um, but it's been really amazing just to meet entrepreneurs and to, and to get to know, uh, different businesses. I think one of the things that that process did of being an angel investor for me is it helped inform who I was in the sense that I realized I'm not a venture capitalist. I realized that my identity, uh, is an entrepreneur that where I'm most excited is when I'm in there with my hands in a product, figuring something out, talking to a customer, trying to, trying to create something. And I think, you know, having colonized be sort of successful and then sort of, uh, not successful. It was this interesting experience for me where I had felt like, okay, we created something that kind of worked, but then it didn't ultimately work. It kind of just died to some degree. And in the end, uh, right media was really successful, but it wasn't my business. I invested in it and did great, but it wasn't my sort of baby, if you will. Uh, we invested in a lot of other folks, and that has been awesome to watch them grow, but they weren't my companies. And so I, and I think my brother really got this feeling of, we need to create our own thing. We need to go out and and sort of put our stamp on on the the internet world as, as much as we can. Um, and so that became part of the the desire behind founding Moat was we wanted to create our own company and, and really get back into operating. And I'm sure that right before you got into mode, there were certain traits that you were able to identify or patterns from those founders that eventually became successful. And perhaps that you shared with Noah, like, hey, you know, like if we go at it again, you know, this is something to keep in mind or or this story to keep in mind. So so what were those traits that really made or gave founders the that potential success that you were able to identify? I mean, I, I guess the way that I think of it is when I see someone else who's an entrepreneur, uh, and I, you know, meet them for coffee or I meet them across the table, it is just obvious to me, uh, whether they are in their heart of hearts, an entrepreneur. And the reason it's obvious is because there's hunger. There's this desire that you can't, you know, contain that if you email them at three o'clock in the morning, they respond at three or one, that if there's an opportunity to, get a new customer and you have to fly for 12 hours or 15 hours to do it, they do it instantaneously and they're on the next flight. And there's this, I think, thing that it's hard to, to, to wrap your arms around, 
But there's this feeling of, I guess, hunger is the closest thing that I can, that I can think of that uh, entrepreneurs that I meet where I just get really excited by, you, you can just tell because it, it, it sort of is all over the place. You can tell that they are driven and passionate and exciting and will do whatever it takes. And it's the number one thing that matters in, in their life. And honestly, that's one of the things that I've struggled with as an entrepreneur is, uh, as for example, um, building moat, I, uh, gained a lot of weight at the time that, that I was building the company. Um, I didn't see my family as much as, as I would like to, as, as I think happens with a lot of people, but I was on a plane constantly every week, every other week I was doing, uh, I, I think in, in, we counted up at one point in the, the course of my first year or two, something like a thousand meetings, um, some ridiculous number of 10 meetings a day, 12 meetings a day to the point you don't remember anything, um, because it was just this desire to, to make it work and to find, and to find success. And so I think one of the things that, that is easy to recognize is when somebody has this appetite, when they're like, I will literally do whatever it takes to be successful. I think one of the challenges is trying to figure out, all right, is there a, is there a, a place of balance for that? Cause I know for me, um, in, in some ways it got the best of me in, in my eating habits and, and things of that nature. And so trying to figure out, all right, how do you, how do you balance that? How do you not stay up 24 seven, uh, and still, and still make this work? It's something that I think Ariana Huffington and others are, are talking about now and sort of trying to get to this balanced lifestyle. I don't know how to do it, frankly, as an entrepreneur, for me, you're either in 24 seven or you're not, I haven't figured out another way, although I'm sure others have. Um, but that's sort of the, the set of things that I look for. And, and to me, it's obvious when you see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so why don't we uh, talk now about mode? So here you are coming from these experiences of success, failure, building, colonize, also identifying patterns, being successful on the investing side. Let's talk about how mode really comes together with Noah and also with Mike. Yeah. And so, so take you back 2007, right? Media sells big success. Everybody, uh, that, that we're talking to says, this is a huge deal, uh, a huge home run. And, uh, I have this feeling of happiness, but also a little bit of emptiness. Uh, and the emptiness was, I felt like this is awesome, but it's not my thing. It's not the thing that I've created. And so I think that started this feeling of like, I need to get back in and operate again. We spent the next couple of years uh, investing in other startups, which I think uh, helped really cement that, that identity in myself, at least that I'm an entrepreneur first and an investor second. Uh, and then what happened was we started talking about Noah and I about what is, what is broken? What are the, what are the things that we think doesn't work in the ecosystem? And we were focused on digital and focused on advertising. This is where we had spent a lot of our time to this point. And one of the things that we concluded was, well, right media was about programmatic advertising. It was about exchange uh, traded advertising. It was about making everything as efficient as possible. And in a lot of ways, it was about direct response advertising because it was mostly direct response advertisers that had adopted those types of platforms at that time. And so we had this sort of idea that, well, where is Pepsi? Where's Coke? Where's Nike? Where's where are all the guys that we think of when we think of brands that have an impact on our lives? And how are those folks advertising in digital? And uh, how are those folks going to figure out digital? And do they have to figure out digital? And you know, I remember having conversations with Noah and and with Mike as well about it, it feels like brands are going to have to figure out how to storytell in digital. This idea that digital is going to be just the 
you know, search medium, just the classifieds medium, just the direct response medium didn't, didn't sit well. It felt like brands are going to have to figure out how do you storytell. And it seemed clear to us that at the time they hadn't, that at the time, what was the most memorable banner ad that you could remember? Not much. What about television ads? Well, you can remember lots of things. You can remember opium happiness with Coca-Cola and the panda bear. You can remember any, any number of things that, that sort of jumped to your head when you think of memorable brand advertising and TV, but we didn't have an equivalent in digital. And so we started thinking, huh, this idea of making brand advertising effective in a world that's increasingly digital seems to be something interesting. Now, that eventually would become our North Star for Moat, but what business we would start was not the business that we ended in. Uh, the business that we first started was a creative-focused marketplace. Our thought was, well, all right, so brands are going to have to figure out digital. Uh, the reason that they're not doing a lot of storytelling in digital is because the ads are not very good. The ads are bad. And so brands are going to make better ads. How can we help brands make better ads? We're going to build a creative marketplace. That was the idea behind uh, Moat when we started in 2010. And our thought was, let's innovation can come from anywhere. Ideas can come from anywhere. We'll leverage that and enable new ideas to surface for brands to storytell. We were completely wrong <laughs> about what to build, um, but we learned that lesson by going out and talking to brands, by saying, hey, we want to show you this idea that we have, and they would listen politely, and then they would tell us that they wouldn't pay for it. They would tell us that their creative agency already does it. They would tell us that they had no way to judge success of the ads that we were creating in our marketplace. And at that point, we thought, that's interesting. How are we going to help them judge success? Well, let me ask that back to you, Mr. or Mrs. Brand. How do you judge success today? How do you know if an ad was successful today? And by and large, they said, well, I guess it's it's whether somebody clicks on the ad. And I remember having this conversation internally with, with Noah that it's weird. We don't really click on banner ads. And it doesn't seem like that many people click on banner ads. In fact, the click-through rate at the time was less than 1%. And so 99 out of 100 people aren't clicking on the ad. How could that be successful? How could that be the metric that a brand was using to judge success? And so we became interested in this idea of, all right, there's got to be a way to judge success for a brand. That makes sense. There's got to be a way for us to show still at the time that our creative marketplace was creating quality ads, um, but it's got to be something beyond clicks. And so we ended up engineering with a great uh, early engineering team, uh, some analytics, and we built the analytics into the ads that were made in our marketplace initially. And the analytics measured things like whether the ad was on the page, how long it was there, uh, whether the the uh, person moused over the ad. We created these cool heat maps around how people moused over ads. And we went out to brands and said, all right, here you go. We have a crowdsourced creative marketplace and we have a way to judge success. We have metrics and analytics to judge whether it worked or not. And the response from brands was, well, we're still not interested in the creative marketplace uh, nicely, um, but the analytics, the engagement metrics, what we would eventually call attention metrics are very, very interesting. And we agree with you that we think uh, consumers, by and large, don't respond to an ad by clicking on it. They see it, they maybe pay attention to it, but they don't necessarily act by clicking on it. And so figuring out how to judge success 
is very, very interesting. And I remember my brother Noah saying to me at the time, I wonder if we could build a business just based on analytics, just based on helping companies and brands understand whether somebody paid attention to their ad. And that really became our mission. So still under the same North Star of making storytelling work for brands in an increasingly digital world. But now we had something that was more specific, which was how do we get brands the metrics that they can use to judge success? And very quickly after that, we stopped doing the creative marketplace and spent all of our time uh, building an analytics platform. In the background, to give you some context, uh, this concept of what's now called viewability had uh, been created. People started talking about, well, how do you know if, there, if, a, if a web page can be scrolled down uh, much further than what you can see on the screen in front of you, how do you know that the ad that you bought actually ever appeared on the screen? Uh, and that became a super interesting problem. Uh, and we ended up with our existing analytics platform thought, huh, I wonder if we can add that into to what we're measuring. In addition to measuring engagement and hover rates and things of that nature, I wonder if just the ad being on the screen uh, is something that we could measure as well. And so uh, we started coding. I remember we went out and met with uh, Forbes and Forbes.com said, hey, it'd be super interesting to get these metrics that you guys are creating on our ads on Forbes. Uh, do you Have you read about this viewability thing? Are you able to measure that as well? And we said, of course. Uh, and then we went back to the office and said, okay, guys, we got to create uh, a, way, a way to measure uh, viewability and all these other things that we just agreed to give Forbes. Um, and lo and behold, we had some awesome talent and we created from, from scratch um, some new metrics. We created metrics around uh, was the person scrolling on the page? How fast were they scrolling? Something which would eventually be called scroll velocity. Uh, we created the metrics around viewability, uh, so on and so forth. And we went back to Forbes uh, and they loved it and they became our first client. Uh, and it really sort of opened up for us the opportunity of building an analytics and eventually measurement company uh, that we would go on to build. Really cool. And at what point did you decide to raise money? Because one thing that I saw here is um, you got really good investors, but I mean, here you guys are coming from already a really nice, successful outcome where you had like some financial muscle. So why did you decide to, to raise money from outsiders? You know, I think there were a couple of reasons. Um, number one, so we did self-fund the company to start. So we put about $3 million into the company. And, you know, from 2010 to 2012, we didn't make any revenue. So we spent two years sort of on our own on our own nickel, our own dime, um, hiring developers and hiring staff and getting office space and iterating and trying things um, to figure out if we had a potential business. Towards the end of 2011 was when we started to get focused on this idea of analytics and when we started to feel like, all right, maybe we have something here. Maybe there's, it's not clear what the business is going to be. We still don't have any revenue, but uh, maybe there's something interesting here. We had also created uh, a search engine for ads, which sounds like a funny thing, but when we would think about the creative marketplace and we would say, so you know how uh, the ads that are created online generally are not very memorable. And people would say, sure, I understand what you're saying, but there was no way to sort of show that to them. We thought we really need a, a search engine for ads. So we can pull up an example ad for fill in the blank brand and show them. So in addition to creating analytics, we created this sort of simple search engine where you could type in any brand and see what the ads looked like that that brand was running online. So with those two things, a, a basic analytics platform and a basic 
if you will, search for ads platform, uh, we decided we'd go out and, and raise some money. Uh, our view was let's raise it from friends and family, from angels, uh, folks that are betting on us, not folks that are betting on, you know, the business model, because we hadn't figured out our business model yet. Um, but we were really fortunate. Uh, Ron Conway was one of the first people that said, I'm in, I want to write a check uh, right away. Uh, the folks at Lair Hippo uh, said they're in right away. Founders Fund, um, Josh Koppelman from First Round. We had a, a number of just awesome uh, yeah, funds step I mean, up right away. Let me let me read it, Jonah, to the people that are listening. So we have SB Angel, First Round, Mayfield, Founders Fund, Lehrer, Founder Collective, Inside Venture Partners, SoftBank. I mean, Bowery Capital. This is like the Oscars. So how, how did <laughs> well, we you get were, these people in? We were we were super fortunate to get to get all of our investors. So so just to put some timelines on it. So uh, Insight Venture Partners was our was our last investor. So they led our Series C, Mayfield, and uh, led our Series B, uh, and SoftBank came into that round as well. Uh, prior to that was our Angel round. That was the SB Angel, Ron Conway, Larry Hippo Founders Fund, uh, and a bunch of of uh, CEOs and and that sort of thing. Um, and honestly, I think it was people that were making the same bet on us that we tried to make on other people. It was saying, look, I don't know what this business is going to turn into, um, but you guys are super passionate. You're clearly spending all of your time on this. Uh, you're focused on it more than anything else right now. And uh, we want to bet on you. And so we were humbled that that some of those folks decided to write us a check. Um, and so we raised our first round, what we called our sort of friends and family round, uh, of about a million five in uh, around August 2011. But at this point, we had raised three million or had, had put three million into the company on our own, now had raised a million five. So in total, we had four and a half million into the company and decided for our next round, uh, instead of raising a Series A, which would have been the logical thing to do, uh, we raised a Series B for some reason uh, and made a, a good learning that I, I try to pass along to entrepreneurs now that you want to be really careful at what price you raise money at, uh, because you can raise money at too high of a price, number one. And the lettering of your round, as silly as that sounds, actually does matter. And the reason is because when you raise a series B, as an example, the next round you raise is a series C. And there are expectations for what does a series C look like? What's the size of the check? What's the sort of growth of the company? What's the revenue, et cetera? When we raised our Series B for Mayfield, which should probably have been a Series A, we didn't have any revenue. And so uh, we had a lot of uh, lessons to be very quickly learned from the day after we signed the paperwork when they said, that's awesome. We're thrilled to be an investor. Uh, now you got to go generate a bunch of revenue and get significant traction before you can raise a Series C. And I went, uh-oh, I, <laughs> I, I don't know if I should have just raised a B. Maybe that was a no mistake, pressure. but... Uh, nonetheless, so yeah, Mayfield Mayfield invested uh, in 2012, um, and we were off and running. One of the things that Mayfield did for us, which was uh, really critical to Moat's success, I think, um, was they helped us figure out SaaS uh, pricing. They helped us figure out how do you price uh, the products that we were selling? How do you do a demand curve exercise? Uh, what does a business look like that's based on uh, SaaS metrics? What are the metrics you use to judge success? So things that I didn't understand at the time. CAC ratios and magic numbers and MRR and ACV and AR, all of these things that became critical parts of how I ran the company um, were really things that Mayfield introduced me to at the time. And I became, frankly, after that, obsessed 
with those metrics because I think that SaaS businesses are wonderful businesses. They're predictable and you can see into the future a bit. Uh, and that was something that that Mayfield showed me. So that was in 2012. And then uh, we ended up raising our Series C from a great firm here in New York, Insight uh, Venture Partners, uh, a partner named Jeff Lieberman uh, and team decided to, to make a bet on us. Uh, and uh, this was at the end of, uh, I believe the end of 2016, that we raised, uh, was it end of 2016? I think that's right. The end of 2016, we raised our round from Insight Venture. So what was the uh, total amount that you guys raised for Moat before the acquisition? So we raised about 70, a little bit under 70 million uh, total. So it was it was uh, three from us, a million five friends and family. So four and a half, another 13 or so led by Mayfield and a handful of others. And then Insight put about 50 in. Got it. And I guess and, it was end of end of 2015. Sorry that that insight put their money in. So you guys were definitely experiencing some really interesting growth. So so at what point do you start to kind of like start to think about you know whether it makes sense or not the the MA? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the way that we thought about it was things are going seemingly pretty well, um, but it's not going to always go that well the next day. And so we, first of all, need to be focused on running the business and not get distracted. And so I think our primary view was we have competitors. We're in a big market. Um, we're not, you know, the, the, the best thing since sliced bread. So don't, don't read too much into anything that seems like it's going well for us. We need to be humble. We need to work incredibly hard. Um, and we need to deliver on behalf of our clients. And if we do that, I think over time, good things will happen. And so I think we tried to be really just focused on uh, delivering on behalf of our clients and and felt that the magic of, of doing that uh, and being focused on product innovation and being focused on what good we can do, uh, good things will, will result. You know, we ended up building relationships with Oracle and with a number of other companies uh, over our time as a company. We had partnered with Oracle actually a couple of years uh, prior to them acquiring the company. Um, and that was great. It was something that we got to know the company a little bit. We got to integrate with uh, some of the products uh, early on. And it's something that I tell entrepreneurs when, you know, you eventually think that your company uh, maybe is going to go public or maybe is going to get acquired, or you think that an M&A is, is possibly the path that makes sense, build partnerships, build bridges with as many big companies as possible. Because Usually when a big company goes to buy a company, uh, it's much easier when they work with you already. It's much easier when the internal champion can point to some success that they've had. It's much easier when they can say, here's the the, the business case. Here's what we're going to do with them because we're already doing it. Uh, and I think that was an important lesson. We didn't do that with every company, but but uh, Oracle was one of them that we had had a, a great relationship with. And so um, when you know they approached us about acquiring moat um it it made sense and and you know we certainly had other conversations and and we're thinking about staying private we're thinking about uh, maybe going public at some point um but we ultimately decided it was the right fit for our employees for our partners for our investors uh, and we decided to to do the deal that's amazing and uh, obviously i know that you guys are uh, you know with uh, all types of uh, confidentiality stuff but it was reported that the deal was for more than 850 million. So that's a really, really fantastic uh, outcome all around. So I want to ask you um, a question here, uh, Jonah, that I typically ask the guests that I have on the show. And that is, I mean, you've been around the block uh, quite quite a few times. So 
if you had to, um, if you had the opportunity to talk with your younger self, and I know that that's quite impossible, and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Yeah, I, I guess on the B2B side, I think we get an advantage. And the advantage that I didn't understand 20 years ago is that you actually get to go out and talk to your customers. You get to talk to the people who are going to give you money for some product that you're trying to create on their behalf. Uh, and so the advice I would give myself is before you even create the finished product, go talk to as many prospects, as many customers as possible, because they'll tell you uh, quite overtly their pain points. They'll tell you, here's the issue we're having. They'll tell you, here's what we would literally pay for. Uh, and so they almost give you uh, the roadmap and they give you the opportunity to see a little bit of a vision into the future of, of what sort of company you might create. And that was something I didn't know uh, in in the beginning years, if I could if I could pick two things, I would say it'd be that and really spending all of my time focusing on just building a great product. Because I think if you build a great product and you're delivering something that the market is asking for, uh, almost nothing else matters. Yes, you can make lots of mistakes doing other things, pricing and hires and all of that. But if you can build a great product and it's what the market's asking for, then you're going to be in a pretty good spot. Really, really cool. And what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi, Jonah? Uh, yeah, for sure. Feel free to email me, uh, Jonah G at Gmail, J-O-N-A-H-G at Gmail. Um, love to meet entrepreneurs, love to uh, still do active angel investing, still advise folks uh, with the best advice that I can that I can give. And frankly, I'm still learning uh, from other entrepreneurs. And so I love meeting people, hearing their perspective, hearing the problems they're trying to solve. Um, and so feel free to reach out and would love to hear from you. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show, Jonah. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. Take care. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.